0: You are the best at being you and not someone else And are at your best when what you do makes you happy Great is what you'll be and confidence is the bag you carry it in The Interplanetary Podcast The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin
1: oh yeah baby tracy tc coldwell dyson whose birthday it is today
0: <laughs> happy birthday tc um, Hey D. C. Matt, i i wish i had one of those dyson air conditioner unit things <laughs> shout out to dyson will you sponsor the podcast Uh, We're in the middle of a heatwave in the UK, and my God, are we not ready for it.
1: Oh, it's the usual thing. We just
0: love talking about the weather, don't we? Moaning about it, and and that's me included.
1: I had an an amazing experience of an electrical storm yesterday. Oh, yeah, you sent me a photograph
0: of a lovely lightning bolt.
1: It lasted for hours, but I was watching cumulonimbus clouds full of electrical activity, just sort of drifting by the harbour. It was absolutely beautiful. You, hours, lo- you love a
0: Nimbus, on. don't you?
1: Yeah, it was great. Yeah,
0: yeah, big time.
1: Tracy D.C. Caldwell Dyson, no relation to Freeman or Mr. Air Conditioning Vacuum Cleaner Dude. No. Dyson is, of course, her, her husband's surname. He's an aviator, apparently. Yeah. But uh, she's the first astronaut to be born after Apollo 11. Oh. Or at least I think she is. Okay. And she- and she was inspired by Krista McAuliffe to become an astronaut, and could potentially be the first person to step back on the moon. Step back on the moon.
0: Ooh, that sounds like a film.
1: Well, it could be the film Artemis when they make it in 20 years' time. Jamie? Yeah? Have you heard of a band called Max Q?
0: I, I'm embarrassed to say that I haven't,
1: no. Should I have? Oh, well, yeah, you should have heard of Max Q. It's Chris Had Chris Hadfield sings lead vocals as does TC. Ah, uh,
0: okay. Now I know I know of that band. I didn't realize it was called Max Q.
1: Max Q, very clever name of course, Max Q being that bit just as a rocket gets to its maximum dynamic pressure. Um I believe
0: when it hits 88 miles an hour, they all burst into song.
1: Ah, uh, like that. Exactly. Yeah. I can't remember which member of the band said like the space shuttle the band makes lots of noise, but no music. <laughs> well, at least they're honest. I've got a feeling they're really good. I mean, feels good, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's not bad. I think they're all pretty good. I'm quite surprised Katie Coleman isn't in there with her Anyone flute. Anyone
0: who sings Bowie in space should be president. Yeah.
1: End of. Bowie's in space. 88 miles an hour to the moon. Jamie, yeah. we've got to do a big shout-out to the two Justins. What, Roberts and Young? Roberts and Young, TTJs. Love those guys. Justin Roberts, Justin Young. So Justin Roberts here in the UK and Justin Young way over in Tasmania. In Tassie, the mate. Astrophotographic legend that he is. Very awesome those two are too. Without them, uh, we wouldn't be able to do things like uh, serve up the podcast on youtube how cool would
0: it be matt one day in the distant future that we can go for a pint with double justin like we're all oh, there in, in a pub just chatting about space space talk
1: where's a halfway point is it is it south korea or something like that is it would it be seoul well it something? sounds
0: like a good a place as any
1: yeah well let's meet up in seoul dudes
0: Get your vaccines.
1: While, while we're doing shout-outs, I want to do a shout-out to every, all of our podcast listeners who are of a certain age who have received their A-level results yesterday.
0: Congratulations to uh, all the students out there. And remember, if you
1: didn't get the results you wanted, there are still options for you. But I want to give a special shout-out to Dylan Thompson, who's been a, who has literally been a patron of the show since we started our patron page. And he got his A levels that he required to get into Birmingham University to do astrophysics. Oh
0: my God. Dylan, you absolute ledge. Congrats. That's
1: huge. That is massively huge. And Birmingham University is really, really good. I'm not just saying that because it's my hometown, but it, it's <laughs> Alberto Vecchio and Andreas Fries, for example, from the LIGO wow. project. They are at birmingham university it's incredibly wait a minute prestigious. Are, you, are you saying that that Dylan
0: wasn't put off by our absolute gibberish each week
1: he, I think he found it very inspirational, Jamie that even you could understand these complicated
0: well <laughs> Dylan I've got news for you I don't understand them <laughs> but I enjoy talking about it nonetheless Excellent. and maybe one day you'll tell me a bit
1: more and Hopefully, Dylan in, in four years' time will be a, a bit like my guest this week, uh, Dennis Sillin from Exodus Orbitals, who oh, yes. uh, gradu- graduated from Cranfield University with a master's, and he's got this startup. It's a really, really good little chat about space startups and the sort of things you can do with these days in space. Siege. So it's definitely worth a gander near the end of the show.
0: Well, what a hell of a cliffhanger! Check out Dennis.
1: Yeah, well, we've got a few things that we need to talk about before we get there, Jamie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big uh, time. Well, three big ones this week, I think. There's the unfortunate disaster, and the pictures of it look really shocking. Is the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico? Yeah. A cable snapped and put a hundred foot gash in. In the uh, reflector dish, you wouldn't think a cable would do that much damage, but it's a three-inch cable, so that I guess that's it's pretty big. big, isn't it? It's yeah, really thick. It wasn't good. If you're wondering which one the Arecibo dish is, if you've ever watched the film Golden Eye with Pierce Brosnan, oh, the classic. James the the James Bond film, he has a fight on it near the end.
0: Even uh, better, N sixty
1: four computer game. Oh yes, and and it fit, I believe it features in that as well. There's an actual yeah yeah. There's a fight, you have to do a, yeah. a fight on on yeah, the Arecibo dish, uh, and of course Jodie Foster in in the film Contact works at the She's Arecibo great. dish as well. So uh, that's pretty cool. But and and they've only just recovered from. We actually covered the story back in 2017 when Hurricane Maria yeah damaged damaged one of the cables. Oh before. man,
0: when are they going to cut a break?
1: Yeah. There's 38, 000, well, over almost 39,000 aluminium panels, and this cable smashed through not that many of them, but it looks really bad. And that sort of collecting dish was the biggest dish in the world until China opened up its ridiculously huge, fast FAST telescope. What does that
0: stand for again?
1: It's the 500 meter aperture spherical telescope. Finally. So obviously, I'm going to edit that so that I just knew it off the top of my head. Yeah, um, sure. this what this one this one's only a 1, thousand feet in diameter. I say only, 1, only a thousand. Obviously, that's absolutely 167 feet deep. Yeah. Covers 20 acres. And do you know yeah, what's really big. cool? It was built. It was built in a sinkhole. That's why Puerto Rico, because it has all these sinkholes, and they're perfect to build these dishes in. Well, let's hope they don't sink anymore. But the weird thing is, like normally satellite dishes are parabolic, aren't they? but yeah. this is this is more spherical cross section of a ball, and that's because they move the receiver around and if you move the receiver bit around in a parabolic dish, you'd get this astigmatism, so it mm. doesn't quite work. Obviously, you can't move the dish because the dish is this absolutely insanely massive object that you couldn't possibly. Move. If you're wondering the other things that Acebo has done, it was built in the 60s. Pretty much immediately, it determined that Mercury had an 88 day um, rotation rather than a 59 day rotation. So that that was discovery number one. Pretty pretty important. Um, It discovered the period of the Crab Pulsar, 33 milliseconds. Nice. That was the first solid evidence that neutron stars existed. Um, Holson Taylor used it to discover the first binary pulsar. Ah, Nobel Prize winning. An asteroid in 1989 was imaged for the first time ever. So you can use this thing to actually build a radar image of objects out in space.
0: 4769 Castalia.
1: That's the one, Jamie. Beautiful I knew uh, it was. pronunciation. Yes. And and it discovered in 1990 the first exoplanets when it discovered a pulsar, PSR B1257 plus 12. I but, mean,
0: I preferred 11, but 12's all right.
1: Yeah, 12's a pretty good one. And, uh, well,. It's it's a better one because of course it's the first exoplanets were discovered around that, and we discussed that when that Nobel Prize went to the people who discovered the next lot of exoplanets because for some reason that's not considered the first exoplanet discovery that's important, even though it clearly is. Uh, 1974, of course, they sent the Arecibo message, which is that funny looking. Atari-type code that they sent off to Messier 13, the globular cluster. That's right. To I see, if, to, see if, to see if there was any aliens there and see if we get and a was reply. There? I don't know. It's yeah. 25,000 light years away, so we, we may have to wait some time. True. Yeah, and it, and it used to track Soviet radar installations by detecting them because of their signals bouncing off the moon. That was its first military thing. Ah, oh, fair enough. Yeah, let's hope it gets fixed soon. So, uh, commiserations to out there to all all you at the Arecibo Observatory. Yes, we're sending we're sending you our best. Hope you get the the old girl back up and running soon. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Jamie, do you want to hear my space word of the week? Yeah. I only want to hear it mm-hmm. if it's got a Z in it. Oh, oh, you're lucky, Jamie, you're lucky. You've heard of pulsars? Oh, yeah, of course. You've heard of quasars, but have you heard of squeezars? What? Squeezars? Squeezars. No. Squeezars. Squeezars. So back in 2003, a couple of chaps, Tal Alexander and Mark Morris, wrote a paper called... Squeezars, tidally powered stars orbiting massive black holes. What they were suggesting was as the stars are in these ridiculous orbits, they'll get squeezed by the black hole because there's so much tidal stuff going on. Uh-huh. what would happen is you might get two different flavours, the s- surface heating with radioactive cooling, hot stars, right. and bulk heating with adiabatic expansion, cold squeeze stars. But w- whatever happens, that you'll get some physical effects from squeezing stars. Now, basically, they will shine much, much brighter. So as they sort of go past the black hole, they get squeezed and brightened. Nothing really done on Squisars since then, but move forward 17 years to a new paper from okay. F- Florian Florian Peker and Andreas Eckhart from the, uh, et al. from the University of Cologne in Germany. Shout out to Cologne. They have uh, looked at some crazy stars uh, that are orbiting around Sagittarius A star but and, and they're really fast-moving. Star S4714 looks like it's going about 8% of the speed of light, making it the fastest star in the Milky Way. That is fast. Well, if you were going that fast, Jamie, you could get round the world in just under two seconds. 15,000 miles a second. That's quick. It's really quick, isn't it? It's absolutely insane. We've got to think about, right, the the Sagittarius A star is this enormous, supermassive black hole at the centre of the galaxy, right? Absolutely huge, roughly 4 million times the mass of the sun. It's got an event horizon that's 17 times that of the radius of the sun, at least. So Uh it stretches out about a tenth of the distance between Earth and the sun. So it's, it's pretty massive. Uh, and it's only 25,000 uh, light years away, a sort of similar distance actually to uh, that um, Messier globular cluster that we were talking about earlier on. In this area about the size of the solar system, you've got this enormous uh, black hole with 4 million yeah. times the mass of the sun in, in the centre of a kind of mini solar system. But instead of planets and comets... You've just got other stars orbiting in the same way that the planets and comets orbit in our solar system. So it's like a sort of mega extreme version of the solar system. That is so extreme. It's very extreme. So S- S4714 is part of a cluster of five stars, and it's on this ridiculously eccentric orbit. So what's great about this is, is eccentricity can be sort of measured on a scale of naught to 1. So where would you fall? on the eccentric scale. I'm definitely up there in a
0: 0.8.
1: You're a 0.8? Okay. Yeah, I'd say so. Well, get this. S4711 is 0.985. So it's... it's Which means... So 0 0 would be a circular orbit, and 1 would mean that it would be an escape orbit. It's so elliptical it would just escape. So 0.985 is just borderline hanging on to the system. So it orbits every twelve years. So like a comet, it will come swooping down around the black black hole at ridiculously high speeds. And it gets really close to the black hole at periapsis. And every then 12 as it has. Uh, yeah. So it's whizzing round. And and at the point where it's furthest away is Apoapsis. It will be it will be almost slowing down to nothing as the black hole pulls it back again. So it's going ridiculous ridiculously fast as it swoops really close to the black hole and then goes away and then just as it's about to leave just when the it system thinks
0: it's going to escape it's like i've done it this time after 12 years it's like this is the time uh uh-uh. uh get your ass
1: back it actually gets so close to the black hole it's a sort of distance that that is the area between saturn and uranus so it orbits within uranus's orbit of the sun that kind of distance and then swings out <laughs> to a ridiculous you know a distance away uh there's another star so this other star ss4 s4711 is also on this highly eccentric orbit not quite as it's slightly more circular and that is on a 7.6 year orbit and that sizzles away around the black hole a little bit further out 144 au but and it's going at 6.7% the speed of light but it makes it the closest average on average to the to the black hole that we know so far so on average it's it's the closest star but this but the other one 4714 whizzes really really close uh like ridiculously close that's close. Obviously, these stars going ridiculously fast, the fastest stars we know of, and getting really, really close to this supermassive black hole. They're getting squeezed, so they're potential candidates <gasps> for squeezars. In squeezers. fact, they're, they're saying that 4711 and 4714 are squeezers. That's exactly what they are. So as they come in, they get squeezed by the black hole. They'll brighten up and this brightening borrows energy from the from the sort of tidal forces which will mean that the the star is going to get slowed down ever so much ever so it'll just get slowed down a little bit every time it swoops in oh god which means of course that its orbit will start decaying and what does that mean it means they're doomed <laughs> they are doomed slowly they will they will just drop beyond the event horizon of the of the of the black hole It'd and get it turned just into spaghetti, stars being turned into spaghetti is someone else, isn't it?
0: Will they see the back of their own head as well?
1: Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not sure that stars have eyes, though, Jamie. So, but yes, not that you know th- 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 of exactly. Not that I know of. Well, you know, you can no. have. You might be able to have conscious stars. Of course, conscious
0: stars. That's next week's show.
1: Well, no. Well, no. The great thing is, Jamie, I've got in the can. I've got uh, a little conversation with Kelvin about conscious stars. So I'm going to stick that. Oh my god! Yes, yeah. yeah I'm going to stick that on the on the uh, patron page soon. Uh, it's so good. It's so funny, Matt. We normally uh, do this
0: at the end, but I'm going to. I'm a rule breaker. So yeah, yeah. What 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 do you have to do to become a patron to hear this exclusive content?
1: Just go to www.patreon.com forward slash. Interplanetary. Or you can just hit up interplanetary.org.uk and
0: the details will be on there.
1: Absolutely. Well, these stars, Jamie, are going to be very helpful when it comes to ch- testing general relativity because they've already used S2. S2 is the, the most famous of the stars that yeah. orbit, orbit the central black hole uh-huh. uh, of, the, of the Milky Way and it, it itself has already been used to measure... The most extreme conditions to see if general relativity holds up, and it did. But these ones yeah, are, 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 are closer and faster. So when the uh, uh, when there's a replacement for for Sinfoni, uh which was a spectrograph for integral field observations in the near infrared, if they, once they make a better one of those, they should be able to uh, use these superfast stars and check out whether Einstein was correct or not. Oh, good old Einie. Good old Einstein. Now, Jamie, my favourite news story of the week and mm. my favourite pun to go with it, which I'm going to thank one of our patrons, Mark Schoen, for. He Cheers, came up Mark. with the... with, the, with the, which, which is going to help me remember the name properly because obviously it's spelt C-E-R-E-S, but the headline is the World Series. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's just great. The World Series, because it turns out that Ceres, the big, the big dwarf planet in the asteroid belt, is a water world. Jamie, Jamie, this is super Whoa. exciting. Not just Europa, but now Ceres joins that as a list of potential candidates for life
0: that's amazing so
1: Kevin Costner could be on there in a jet ski exactly exactly so so there's a whole heap of papers that were dumped in nature based on the data from the Dawn spacecraft so yes Ceres uh, discovered 1801 uh, and it's in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter it's the 25th largest object in the solar system 580 miles across. It's the only object in the asteroid belt that's been rounded off by its own mass. And in fact, Mm. it's 25% of the asteroid belt's total mass. Yeah. And even then, even then, Pluto is 14 times bigger. So Pluto is made up of more material than the entire asteroid belt, including. And they've got the nerve, Matthew, to call it a dwarf. (laughs) Yeah. Absolute well, cheek of it. I know it's absolutely. Yeah, it's an outrage. Yeah, it's a disgrace. So I'd like to speak to the manager. <laughs> so remember, 2015. One of the greatest things ever was the robotic NASA spacecraft Dawn. Dawn, of course. And yeah. it entered uh, the orbit. In, it managed to get into orbit around Ceres, uh, and that is after it had done. Um, it had gone into orbit around Vesta. Which is another object in the asteroid belt, making up nine percent of the asteroid belt's mass, and which made Dawn the first ever spacecraft to be able to get into orbit around two separate bodies in the solar system, and that's yes. because it—that's because it had these ion engines that could, well, that get this: the ion engines ran for five point nine years on that mission. So the, these engines just blasting away. Really, really cool. God, you'd get some nectar points for that at the garage, wouldn't you? <laughs> exactly. But one of do you remember when Dawn was approaching uh uh series, it was really obvious that there was these these sort of really bright white features, particularly this one great big spot as it approached. Yeah. And as it got closer and closer, this 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 spot became more and more of a a, a feature it's like wow this is really incredible and it was this made this really reflective area in a in a place called the Akata crater okay and uh there's two spots in there the Caria, Carialia faculi and the Vinalia faculi and right. as dawn got closer it got into orbit and it managed to get down and was taking pictures only 22 miles above the surface imagine that and uh, and it it was imaged these spots, and you can go and see the, the imagery. That's absolutely fantastic. But they're sort of white and pink. There's a sort of pink in the in the spots as well. Yeah. And what they worked out is that that it's salt. They're salt uh, crystals left over oh, right. from from salt water that's been seeping out of the planet. Leaving behind these sodium carbonates to create this highly reflective surface. Now, the, the highly reflective surface wouldn't last very long when you've got all these mic- micrometeorites coming no. in and, and dulling the surface. You, it they would all be not. kicked off, right? So we know that it must be pretty new, but also that it must be keep being a bit replenished because it turns out that there was still a little bit of wetness in this salt. So water is seeping up somehow. Now, you can, you can account for quite a bit of it, this surface water, by the fact that a Kator is an impact crater, and the actual heat from the impact of whatever hit Ceres uh, uh, way back 20 million years ago created a lot uh-huh. of heat. All that heat cr- created all the sort of ice in the, in the rock of Ceres to sort of melt and, and, and come to the surface. But as it's cooled down, you wouldn't expect it to still be wet now after twenty million years. So what they think has happened is it's also opened up cracks and fractures that go even deeper into a lake. So and this lake Whoa. is is there's a reservoir underneath of brine that's that's sort of percolating up to the surface continually. And they reckon that this reservoir is 25 miles deep and hundreds of miles wide. In other words, it's, it takes up a, a, a very large chunk of uh, a series. So it's, it's yeah, Um and there's lots of other evidence as well. There's these little small mounds and hills that are caused by this cryo hydrological formations as the as the asteroid came in and then water splashed over the surface of the of Ceres and then and then formed these mounds and things. Uh oh, incredible and, scenes. I yeah. to have a drone
0: up there, Matt, eh?
1: Oh my god. So Imagine that. Well, we, we kind of did. I mean, Dawn, Dawn spacecraft almost was a drone going over. I mean, flying at twenty-two so. miles, twenty-two miles high is—we've essentially had it. But I, I tell you what, it certainly—it certainly gives it the case to actually go back and say we should really seriously go back because it's—it's it's very very easy to get to compared to Europa or, or um, Enceladus or Titan. So you know, we're talking. Th- th- we sh- it, I would think that now, we, now we've definitively said that uh, Ceres is an ocean world, that the, the, the solar system's just got loads more interesting and we're going to just be discussing more and more about how it's a potential home for microbial extraterrestrial life.
0: Well, you know this is one of my favourite subjects, Matt, if not my favourite subject. So I'm all in, quite frankly.
1: So quite frankly, Jamie... Whalians might be on series. <laughs> I, I mean,
0: am not going to sleep tonight. I mean, firstly, because of the heat wave. Secondly, because of another possible Whalian planet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jamie, it is so moon. cool, isn't it? That is so cool, oh,
0: isn't it? It's just ridiculous.
1: I uh, will shout out to the patrons after... Jamie, I'm going to play you my interview now with Dennis Sillin from Exodus Orbitals. I I really enjoyed it. Uh, The funniest bit was I was thinking, shall I ask him the question about whether he's got a space song? Because I hadn't prepped him. It was one of those very last-minute interviews. And it turned out that his space song was really important and uh, really cool. So I'm looking forward to this even more. Let's roll it. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, cutie! The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space! I'm joined on the podcast by Dennis Sillin, who's uh, in Canada, I believe. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to talk to you today. Well, well you, you got in touch because you had an interesting project called Nova and it, it just looked just too fun. And, I, and I've been meaning to do a, an episode about startups and small sats and all those kind of things and how easy it, well, when I say easy, but how, <laughs> how much easier it is to sort of get involved with space these days. So, yeah, first of all, tell us a little bit about your company Exodus Orbitals and then, yeah, a little bit about this uh, Nova project.
2: We started our company back in 2018 while I was studying for my uh, master's degree in United Kingdom, Cranfield University to be specific. And the idea for me before I got into the, even before I got into the, my degree was to start a company by the end of, uh, by, by, the, by the end of my studies, start a company in space industry because this was my long time dream. And this was specifically why I got, got back into school. And that was that's what the plan and the plan succeeded 100% in that part at least. So we tried to we with my fellow students we tried to find an idea that would be possible to implement on a small budget by the student team with not much experience. And you know we tried to to go into the space uh, launch uh, sector, but basically you have to start with like 20 million pounds to begin with. And none of us had that kind of money. And then we went, naturally after that, we looked into the opportunities in small satellites, CubeSats, and we tried a few ideas, but we decided to find a better idea. And uh, in the end, we stuck to what our current concept is about. And that that doesn't cost a lot of money compared to the building, you know, competing with Elon Musk. (laughs) <laughs> and our idea is our idea is basically quite quite simple in its nature. As you know, space is hard because it's difficult and expensive to launch physical objects into space. So every every kilo, kilogram of mass is you know tens of thousands of dollars. And if you want to do something interesting, you need more more stuff there. You need assets in space. And. What kind of payload has zero mass? And it is software. And so software, as you know, is not, not, not taking any kind of, uh, any, any kind of uh, requirement to actually be physically, physically present as an object. So it's an immaterial entity. So the point is, if you want to upload your software on the satellite right now, it will cost you 30 bucks. That's just that three zero, not millions and not even thousands. so idea our idea is to deploy a satellite and then ramp it out to the customers on the ground think of think of it as you know server, web server in space, or you know something that you can develop your programs for and deploy it without you know having been that prohibitively costly to do. This is the the whole core. Of our idea. So we deploy the infrastructure and then we rent it out to the customers. And for the customers, they don't need to launch anything, they don't need to build any physical satellite. They just need to write the code. And there are you know at least million, million of software developers in the United States alone, and many more around the world. And we want to make space access affordable, a lot more affordable than it is right now. And this is what we are trying to push and so far. You know, we're making progress and the plan is to launch our first satellite in 2021 and, you know, make it available for, our, for everyone on the ground pretty much. We have done enough engineering work to make, so we can say, so I can say it's actually feasible. The mission of this, the first mission of this kind is already being in in development and from European Space Agency which we are a uh, participate in in as well so this concept i was explaining is not exactly not exactly that crazy there's already uh, movement in space industry yep. to they kind of start to understand that that concept as well
1: what what was the name of the european uh space
2: agency mission that did that it's called ops sat and it was launched in december 2019 And we're trying, currently we're working with this uh, to get basically results out of this mission. And if you're interested in specific details, basically satellite is a hardware sandbox. And what we are building is the software sandbox. So like two sandboxes provide sufficient isolation and safety for user applications. So you can be sure that if you develop the code and upload on the satellite, you'll be fine even if your software is full of bugs and it will not kill the satellite mission.
1: Right. So, I mean, so how flexible is this, is this particular architecture? So presumably you start off small with a, with a CubeSat and people can do a, a sort of varying amount of experiments, but it's limited by the hardware. Do you have a vision yes. that, that, that that just keeps growing and growing and growing as, as you get more adaptive and, more, and larger hardware in space?
2: Yes, that's a good observation. The the people who will be using our first satellite, of course, will be limited uh, limited by the hardware we'll provide. But as we uh, grow, and create more capable uh, satellite platform, there will there will be more and more applications possible. So right now, I can tell you that the two most versatile instruments are imaging camera in you know visible light spectrum spectrum or multispectral and software-defined radio by their nature they already allow multiple possible applications and those two instruments will be you know the first two on our platform the next one which we want to build as a second generation uh, uh, part of second generation hardware is a uh, machine learning uh, algorithms accelerator which we already partnered partnered with another company so with that you can run uh, machine learning, Tasks in space, especially on imagery data and on signals data from SDR. So that will be like the next step. And in the end, like the, the end game is have a constellation of the satellites with all the possible satellite instruments, but for you it will be one big virtual satellite that you will have access, you know, full access to it. So one satellite has imager, one satellite, say synthetic has synthetic aperture radar, but for you, it's going to be like a API application programming interface platform like Amazon, so you can get all the functionality and everything will be quite uh, transparent and seamless to you.
1: Ah, now that is interesting. Yes. You're kind of almost putting up a swarm, a, a, a constellation of, of things to plug into.
2: Correct. So things to play with and very similar to how um, cloud computing is developing on the ground, you get almost... Mm, unlimited amount of, or infinite amount of possible, you know, functionality at, at you know, fingertips on, on your laptop or desktop. This is the, the game we're trying to make available in space as well. Of course, it's quite, quite, quite hard in terms of, you know, capital requirements to put this whole hard, all this hardware space. So we start with just one cubes up and this is not easy by itself, but you know, the roadmap is quite clear at this point. With
1: the larger sort of satellite companies uh, with their sort of satellite buses are any of them moving in that direction where you have these you know very very large expensive satellites you know the 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 millions and millions to the billions style uh, are they sort of going down this software adaptive route or is this or
2: yes is... there's already there's already uh, like a few projects going on so large uh, like geostationary telecom satellites are uh, can already be rented out to the customers i believe uh, i i I, mean, I saw the news it's not not to the same level as we uh, as we plan to do as those satellites are very specialized, but yes like people understand understand the the nature of this uh, concept in the space industry as well. There's also Lockheed Martin who is working on their software defined satellite technology, and they have launched uh, their first you know prototype uh, this year I believe. I mean, it's just just an emerging area with, that people just are just starting to to work in, and there's a couple of other companies that already you know well figured out this thing, and will be launching uh, reconfigurable satellites to um, basically swap the soft the mission software depending on the the customer mission. So the satellite hardware stays the same, but the mission software gets changed depending on the on the customer needs. Well, this is the this is what the current um, current picture of this area at the moment.
1: Yeah. So, with with when you were trying to raise funds, I noticed that you've you've just finished a Kickstarter campaign, but unfortunately, it wasn't successful. Is that is that the is that the normal routine now for 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 these smaller? Space endeavours to go down Kickstarter, or is or is this quite a sort of novel way of doing it?
2: Ah, well, it's a uh, it's a bit of a uh, you know, we're a bit of we are our company is a bit of exception from every possible <laughs> from every possible area. So normally you get venture capital or government grants, but we haven't. We're trying to, to, to get that kind of funding as well, but so far we haven't succeeded in any in getting any funding at all. The only thing we are succeeding is the engineering part where the, you know, mm. our engineering is moving from success from success, but our fundraising from uh, moving from failure to failure. So Kickstarter was one of the options we tried to explore. So, well, the, our our major problem at this moment is not so much um, fundraising as our, you know, complete obscurity. Nobody knows about us so very few people know and we're trying to you know expand our outreach and everyone everyone who we talk to says oh that's really a good idea but there's not that many people that know about us this is why you know mm. why i'm trying to spread the message as much as possible i think it is a good idea it's you know opportunities for the people that could not participate in space exploration when you
1: were at cranfield doing your doing your masters was that something that they concentrated on that kind of element of the business side of getting new space ventures off the ground or, or was that something as as a bunch of students you had to uh, do off your own back
2: well it was more of a second one we just a bunch of students but i know the number of other companies were started by the same year by the students of the same year in my in my degree we focused it on the you know science and engineering parts of space It was purely purely that, that I was studying. The startup was completely, you know, my idea, or, you know, fellow students' uh, cooperation. And uh, with fellow students' cooperation, no, Cranfield has like MBA school, but I wasn't wasn't there, Mm -hmm. I wasn't studying there. Uh, But no, like, like it was purely like 100% science engineering degree I was doing.
1: So, you know, as someone that's now spent some time uh hammering away in the kind of in in this kind of area of new space and stuff what what are the sort of things that you've learned and what are the sort of things that you could sort of tell other people about your experience so far
2: so well my major take as you know startup entrepreneur <laughs> sales and smart, sales and marketing are as more as important or even more important than engineering because if you get like say you know five smart engineers you can be certain they will get results done but none of none of us are experts in sales none of us are expert in marketing and that part is extremely important but trying our best you know to learn that but again we are kind of all amateurs at this point and this is a bit of a you know <laughs> uphill struggle for us
1: so if there's yeah. if, there, if there's any podcast listeners who are uh, who are uh, Really massively into space, but a uh, marketing and and uh, <laughs> new venture. Would would you be interested in them and getting in touch?
2: Absolutely, <laughs> by all means. We, space is open for everyone.
1: Right. Yeah. No, well. Well. I mean, this is this is the kind of story that I'm hearing now, sort of getting louder and louder, and especially actually in the UK where there seems to be some kind of push to to, to put to to push, um, you know, new ventures further forward, that, that, that that's what the UK want to be in the, in the, in the not too distant future, is, is a, a leader in space.
2: Well, oh. there's definitely that. You have to be smart with your strategy if you become a startup founder, because it comes down to the money, how much money I do have on, on, on your bank account, and space is you know, extremely expensive area for any kind of activities. I think we found, found a way to make it a lot cheaper than before but it's still, you know, everything costs money. And even the marketing, even the marketing itself is the more money you have, the more you can spend on advertising and so on and on. And kind of we are stuck in the, in like in, at the bottom at the moment. Simply, you know, don't successful with fundraising and we're not successful with, you know, our outreach. And we have those two problems we're currently struggling with. Once we get one of them solved, then the second one will become much easier
1: with people who were interested in that technology that platform what were the sort of ideas that people were thinking of using the platform for
2: well the very simple idea is to make pictures of the earth underneath based on the specific location and that that's basically the first application you can do in space that you cannot do on earth and uh well it's not not that you know, trivial. You have to be aware of you know orbital uh, mechanics a bit, because some you need to be aware of the the position of your satellite mm-hmm. versus the you know illumination conditions on the ground, because your satellite may be over the target just fine, but it is nighttime and you won't see much. Yeah. So there is a degree of, you know you know learning curve that is interesting experience by itself. If you never tried to operate the satellite, you you are simply not aware of what you need to know. And while while you're trying to do it, that's that's you know that's a part of the fun that we can offer. And the second mission that was actually uh, um, there wasn't that was actually you know an interesting opportunity in itself. Make make a picture of another satellite in orbit that your your satellite our satellite is flying. Uh, um being close enough so it will be like a pixel or two but it it is an you know interesting challenge can you track the other satellite can you figure out it's you know the window of opportunity where you can make your photo and the same goes for other celestial objects for example with an earth observation camera you can make quite good pictures of the moon and again this maybe not not that um not that difficult when experience satellite operator but if you it's if, if it's your first time you simply you know need to figure out what steps need to be done this is a bit like you know learning programming you start with simple tasks and then you you figure out you can write something more advanced but sim- simple simple goals first
1: yeah so with 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 nova itself you've got this cube the what sort of orbit would it be in and and how long does it actually stay up in orbit
2: so yes the orbit will be in um Low Earth orbit, specifically Sun synchronous orbit with about 500 550 kilometers altitude. So the satellite will stay up there for at least one year, given you know enough time for um, for people to try it. And that's very common or or that's very common orbit for Earth observation cubesats. And you know it's fairly you know straightforward choice.
1: It comes down after about a year or or is that? it'll
2: be it'll be in orbit more than a year but it will be operating for at least a year that's the current plan
1: and then so so they they decay out of orbit presumably and then just burn up harmlessly is that right
2: that that's correct it's there the orbit is low enough so they re-entry back into the earth atmosphere after a few years well the reason i'm saying that the lifetime is at least one year because the satellite can die while still in orbit yeah Especially with CubeSats, they don't have like particularly high life expectancy. Is
1: that to do with radiation?
2: Yes, yeah, space radiation is what usually kills them. You never know, we did uh, like a series of uh, posts on the history of CubeSats. And do you know that the first CubeSat, one that was launched in back, in back in 2003, I believe, is still in orbit and still operating, still actually operating?
1: Wow. No, I didn't know that. No, that's actually incredible. I mean, is that is that one of the things about CubeSats that they that that people put them into an orbit that decays quite quickly because really a CubeSat isn't reliable enough to get itself out into a graveyard or to decommission itself.
2: Well, I would say the satellite orbit is primarily determined by the satellite mission, and most of CubeSats are about Earth observation or um, surveillance or communication. You, and you don't you don't need any other orbit than you know the low Earth orbit, but uh, those few cubesats in two thousand three were launched by basically a uh, reused uh, ICBM, and they were put in much higher orbit, about eight hundred kilometers uh, altitude. This is why they're still you know up and operating.
1: Well, wow. I did so when you were looking at sort of missions with cubesats, did you ever look at um interplanetary missions, like sticking them out around the moon or sticking them out around Mars, or is that just too difficult?
2: Well, not maybe on year one, but we have a couple of crazy ideas about the interplanetary mission. So one of them is make a CubeSat race. So each team gets a CubeSat to operate, and we send them to the moon. And the goal of the race is to fly as slow Above the moon surface as possible, to just get get that uh, picture of the moon from say 10 kilometers, or maybe one kilometer. Or yes, if, if as you know there is no atmosphere, so maybe you can fly your cubesat just maybe 100 meters. And you know the winner is the one who gets his cubesat lowest. And it's kind of a fun challenge, because on one side you you need to be uh, you know high enough not to crash into the moon. On the other side, uh, how low you can get is actually an unknown question. Maybe you can fly your cubesat just one meter above the the moon's mountain, and that would be kind of an interesting achievement. <laughs>
1: yeah. So I mean, how? I mean that, that I can see that what what would be a great one for that would be for for me to grab a couple of moon hoaxes and say, right, let's let's get let's get one of Dennis's um, cubesats and we'll fly it to the moon and we'll take a picture of the Apollo. 11 landing site will will you be satisfied then
2: yeah maybe that that can be an option because and uh the second idea which is a bit less crazy but not, nonetheless a bit more challenging is basically uh, think of a cubesat share the cubesat between multiple you know users and send them cubesats to explore the asteroid and the goal of that mission would be collect you know, the data for asteroid mining, and then those people who own the part of the cubesat share, you know, mm. they will get access to the data, but just those people. So it's a bit like a, you know commercial enterprise. You invest into the cubesat by not if it's it, it, because it is an expensive kind of mission. You say like hundred people yeah. invest into one cubesat. We send it to asteroid, collect the data, and then the you know the assets will be the, da- the data of an asteroid, you know, composition, and then you can you know sell that data to an asteroid mining company and get get your money back, for example. Yes, yeah, so, so you're, of- yeah, you're on a prospecting mission, in other words. Prospecting mission. Yeah, but uh, the goal is to make that prospecting mission available to the to the people, so it's not just you know we are doing that. It's many. Anyone who is interested in asteroid mining can 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 take an active active part in this kind of activity. Right. So, Dennis, what, what's next
1: for uh, what's next for your uh, company, and where what what's what's the next plan?
2: Well, the next plan. We have a few um, few engineering projects to finish, including the one on our website called Micronova, which is uh, basically a ground model of, of uh, one one U CubeSat. That people can get to play with on the ground first, mm-hmm. and then they can they can learn to develop the basics of satellite applications on the ground, and once they, they can build something, they can use the software for our nova mission. so that's the plan and it fortunately doesn't cost as much to make things that work on the ground mm. and we are still um, still making a lot of, making a lot of efforts to succeed in our fundraising. And marketing, so I'm like the CEO, so you you're doing like 10 things at once. and that's the plan for the next few months. and we are still we are still want to get our mission in space by the end of 2021. So what they'll have you know plenty of things to do. and uh, that's you know the immediate picture. once we once we are kind of standing more more solidly on the ground, there's quite a lot of things in the pipeline I want to do in the terms of you know satellite satellite uh, exploration, and you know yes you know an engineer and we have an engineering team we're not, we not short of uh, good ideas. just all of them require you know proper execution. It's one, one part I learned as entrepreneur execution is everything. We, you will never run out of good ideas, but you have to pick one and stick to it. And get it to the point where it has, you know, flesh and blood. It has been a big, uh, you know, tremendous learning experience for me as uh, running the company. Even with all with all our challenges, it's still, still an amazing experience, an amazing adventure. Like you, you are in the, in the same field as you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Well, we don't have their money. I have their passion, <laughs> and I, have, I don't think I'm Noah. And no, no less, uh, no less uh, motivated to succeed as they are. Well, in some ways, you're
1: you're thinking of the actual application. He, 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 Musk's just thinking about opening. He's, he's a road builder, isn't he? Really, and I suppose that you're then thinking about the the actual cars that you stick on the road.
2: Yes, definitely. I'm more interested in you know things done in space, satellites, and you know spacecraft. Not not much about the rockets, you know. Yeah. By themselves, but you know the things you can do in space. It's quite a lot of you know things are possible, but we haven't really even tried tried doing them. We, I would say the space exploration is still in its infancy. We only have say you know six people, you know three 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 to six people in space at the moment, and there's only so much they can do. Think of the, you know not so far future when there'll be thousands of people in space doing you know things that we can't even imagine at the moment. And, you know, next century, there will be millions of people and interplanetary colonies. And what can be possible in, in this in these times? I don't even know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I was struck really by the idea that if you've got a platform in space where people can cheaply test ideas, I mean, you could have extraordinary ideas, couldn't you, like testing general relativity? A university could just write some programming if you've got the right kind of instrumentation on board your CubeSat, and you can do crazy stuff like that.
2: Yes, quite a lot of you know those ideas that come from universities that hasn't seen the light of the day mm. because simply it's you know out of their budget at the moment. One thing I did not mention: we do want to give that our platform capabilities to universities and both students and researchers. Because when I was doing my master's, I didn't have the chance to say, write a code for the satellite and upload it to see how it will, you know, what results it can yield. Uh, We did things, you know, so we studied the theory and we did a little bit of lab experiments on the ground, but none of us at that point had access to anything in space. And again, there's quite a lot of things you can do. And we have been in touch with a number of um, professors at um, a couple of universities in, in Europe. And US, so that's on the on the on my list as well.
1: Fantastic.
2: Well, where's the best place for people to see what you're up to at the moment? Well, our website and social media and LinkedIn. I would say our Twitter is the place to get uh, immediate updates, and on the website you can re- read um, a little bit more uh, in detail. Okay. So, it's Twitter is easy to find. It's Exodus Orbitals. You can Google us, our name is quite uh, quite unique in fact,
1: where did, the, where, did the, where did the name where did the name come from?:
2: Oh, we had like uh, naming things is actually hard.: <laughs> Oh yeah, like, no, tell me about it. We <laughs> spent like at least at least a month in you know trying to find the name, and you know the second word was actually easier to figure out orbitals, so it's everything that basically orbits something. Mm-hmm. The stuff will be working with you know satellites. And hopefully a um, space station and the exodus orbitals is uh is basically what our mission is about allow people to you know basically explore outside of earth mm-hmm. and leave earth eventually so exodus orbitals is our you know long term mission and it's about you know interplanetary well settlement and colonization of solar system in the very long run so you kind of can Earth becomes from you know just you know one planet that you cannot leave it will become like a starting point and you explore into the solar system and beyond
1: yeah well that that, that definitely makes sense that's that's great i was i was almost hoping you were going to say it was related to bob marley but
2: <laughs> no sorry not not that uh, not that,
1: uh... Because then we could have stuck Bob Marley on our space playlist well you do, you don't happen to have a uh, a favorite space song, do you that we can stick on our
2: oh I do that would be probably a I can talk about that one enough for another podcast episode there <laughs> is actually a, an entire genre of music that's devoted to space exploration oh what and there's a, there's a song uh, there's an album's being published, and I can give you some YouTube links in the chat. Oh um, yes please yeah Songs that you know people seen at you know sci-fi conventions Yep. i'm pretty sure there are like hundreds of them based on uh, what i see they're not they're not you know very well known outside of you know yeah smaller community of sci-fi fans and space oriented but you can see the cover ah the right cover of uh, of the tape it okay. was done on on the, the album was published on uh, on cassette uh, cassette tape Back in the '80s, and uh, the guy found and restored those tapes, and now they're available for everyone on YouTube.
1: Oh wow, that's really cool! So, is this is this the sort of thing that you were all nerding out at when you were doing your masters? Yes, yeah, so I'm
2: like, <laughs> well, that no, that was the inspiration for me to to apply for the masters. I was uh, a fan of this music long time before I started oh, my studies. Oh,
1: fantastic!
2: Oh, yeah, that's... my life was a bit of uh, again, a gator a story worth of a book, and I me well. One day, I'll, I'll have it published. Oh, awesome! But yeah, yeah. Uh, had uh, quite a number of adventures in my life, even before my uh, my masters.
1: Yeah. So yeah, yeah. You, you did your masters in the UK. You're
2: currently in Canada. Where Where did you grow up? I grew up in Ukraine, or more specifically, in Soviet Union first, and then um, Ukraine as an independent country. Mm-hmm. And in 2004, I immigrated to Canada where i did you know my uh, undergrad studies and worked for quite a while um as a software developer and tech support but you know i was always dreaming about the uh, space exploration and um, at one point in my life basically it was uh about making a choice mm-hmm. do i still you know work as a software developer which is a you know, fine job and you know brings food on the table it's quite you know i Comfortable, you know, lifestyle, or but there is no, there is not much opportunity to for me to get that shot at at what I am doing right now if I stay
1: hmm.
2: where I am. So I basically took a challenge and applied for my master's program, and uh, it's quite a number of things happened in that year. Both good and bad. And the
1: space music was one of the uh, one of the driving factors. Well, yes. Amazing! Yes, they were
2: absolutely awesome. Yes, I, I'm kind of you know, I was passionate about the space as long as I remember myself. The the one of the first books I read as a kid was an illustrated encyclopedia about everything, and the the final volume was about space, and the final page was about you know aliens and you know life outside the Earth, and that was um, in the early 90s, so when there were no even they didn't know their other they didn't know anything about any other planets and the last page of that book was you know a speculation like earth must not be the only planet so there might be more planets on there and maybe there's life out there somewhere yeah and uh, yeah that was you know my long long lasting impression wow do you still have you still got your uh, have you still got that book no the book is still there but it's in the ukraine right now at the, our old apartment
1: and presu- presumably, it's a presumably it's a, a Russian. Is it a Russian book
2: or a Ukrainian book? Ah, so there is a, a twist. <laughs> it's a book. It's a book originally published in UK Whoa. and translated translated into Russian. So republished in the Soviet Union. So it is originally like a British encyclopedia, and it basically it's a Russian edition of that. What? What can you remember? What? What the name is? The name was Joy of Knowledge. The publisher was Mitchell Bisley, like I can, can literally can recite a uh, l- large amount of content from the book to the day. So it's my favorite encyclopedia. Oh, it's from that. Yes. Yeah, so do you know what? Yeah, we, I think I used
1: to have that in our school. I, do, I, I, yes, I actually recognize that's... the. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. That, well, that brings back a few memories.
2: You know, you see uh, we are on the same page.
1: There's such a huge connection between music and and it re- really into kind of that those type of books when you're a child and, and sort of really getting into space and then never being able to really shake it off and so that you always end up going back to space, if you see what I mean.
2: Oh, yeah, I understand you perfectly. This is what happened to me, basically.
1: Thank you very much for, for dropping in and, and, and giving us a quick overview of what you do. I think it's really exciting times in terms of being able to do stuff like this. So I wish you absolutely massive luck and and obviously anyone out there in podcast world who wants to, to sort of help you with your endeavors, they should presumably get in touch and they can do that through your website, presumably.
2: Absolutely, website or social media and we have an email and I read it every day. Thank you so much for giving me time to express my, my passion. And, you know, I hope someone from audience might join our journey one day. As I mentioned, we are trying to make space easier, not harder mm-hmm. to, uh, for the people to participate. It's a good field to be in because people are very, very supportive of our cause. We got a lot, of, a lot of help from the strangers as well as our friends and family and my friends and family. And that's an amazing journey in itself. You never know what you can do until you actually try it, and I'm glad I actually tried it. Well, yeah, that's a that's
1: a really inspirational end. So thank you very much for joining me. That's really cool. Thank you. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! There you go, Jamie. What what How uh, good is Dennis? I really enjoyed that chat. Great. Matt, day. if people want to follow Dennis online. I would I will stick all the links to all those all the things that you mentioned. In the notes of the podcast. So you can go Excellent. and click click through. Uh Jamie, let's do the big shout out let's to the it. legends that are the Interplanetary Podcast patrons. Let's do what let's do one each. Go. Dr. Bob Volton Hodges. John the Explorer
0: Benak. Carol the Talon Talent Sim. Julio Um Fuse. A prayer. Oh, yes. Dr. Yeah, Kitan, Neuroscientist, Hokanson. Darren, The Law, Fuchs. <laughs> the Law, Oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm jealous of that one. <laughs> Ronald, Man of Kent,
1: Hatcher. Marissa, Star Dreamer, Davis. Patrick, PH, Haywood. Tupper, No Socks Hide. Multi, The Gecko. Keebling. Rob Habitats
0: Annable. Stas source code Shusha. Mark bleeping shun. What about Christopher? Historian Andreasen? What about Alden, the tech guy, Vala? Oh yes, legend. What about Anthony, the stalwart
1: engineer Peggs. Finally, but certainly not leastily, Bob. I could not like him more, more.
0: I see what you did there, and I completely concur. Shout out to all of you legends. You make this podcast happen, so thank you.
1: Excellent. Um, And obviously, if you want uh, new uh, nicknames in the middle there, just let me know on Discord. Yeah,
0: let's (laughs) know know your own nickname.
1: I, I was struggling. I spent probably a little bit too much time on that. Uh, when I should have been <laughs> you didn't writing not spend that much content. time on
0: Patrick P.H. Hayward. Sorry, Patrick. Patrick, I'm going to change your nickname to The Destroyer. <laughs> I hope you like it. If you don't, we'll change it. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick, it just sounds Destroyer cool, it? Hayward. Yes, yeah. I like it. I don't. I, I would and be you happy might think that that's aggressive, that. Matt, but he's a destroyer of hate.
1: Yeah, or destroyer of bad knowledge.
0: Of, in- of He's a destroyer of injustice.
1: Oh, yes. So there we go, Patrick. You've Uh, been
0: upgraded.
1: Jamie, what are you doing in the sweltering heat of the weekend this weekend?
0: Oh, I'm trying to keep cool, calm and collected. And uh, I'm playing guitar this weekend. Um, I I was talking to you earlier, wasn't I, about one of my favourite bands from America, The Replacements. Uh, Love them. Uh, so i'm going to be learning some songs what about you matt
1: um yeah i've i am going to be learning some songs too uh, i uh george and i are going to have a crack at recording awaken by yes <laughs> oh huge that is <laughs> that, way that is actually huge. Than my song <laughs> i've got a feeling it, it, it might be a little bit too tricky for me no nah, impossible uh, yeah, I'm i've seen george again. play mm-hmm. Oh, George will be all right with the Wakeman parts. I'm just a little bit worried about me doing the How parts, and God knows yeah, who's going to do the singing.
0: To... I think we're all a bit worried, but we'll we'll you know let's check
1: back in next week. Yeah, yeah. All I know is it's awake and gentle mass touching.
0: Oh yes, well, yes. yes. Everyone have a good weekend. Stay cool, calm, and collected as well. And uh, we'll see you next week.
1: Au revoir, podcasts. See you next week for more fun and games in Space World. See
0: you soon, bye.